But thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Um, let's see. So I'm Diana Pan, and I'm the director of the American Studies Program at Brooklyn College. So I'll tell you a little bit about American Studies. It is an interdisciplinary program and draws on history, art, philosophy, urban sustainability, political science, music, among other fields. Uh, we've expanded our course offerings to include more breadth and depth and experiences and identities. This is our second event of the semester um, with Maria and I, I am so thrilled at those intersections exactly that I had just spoken about. So for the undergrads who are with us today, please consider taking a class with American Studies, even if you're not at Brooklyn College. Um, as the director, I'm very happy to grant you permits. Um, in addition to directing uh, American Studies, I'm also faculty in the Department of Sociology at Brooklyn College, and um, I'm affiliated with the Social Department at the Graduate Center as well. So I want to, again, welcome you all to today's Zoom event, and I want to share a little bit of gratitude because it truly takes a village to put on any event these days, um, or any days, I guess. So first, I'd like to thank Estan Alonso, who is here, the director of the Wolf Institute of Humanities and generous co-sponsor who created the beautiful flyers advertising today's <laughs> event. Thank you very much. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank other co-sponsors at Brooklyn College, the Puerto Rican and Latino Studies Department, the Sociology Department, Women and Gender Studies Program, the Urban Sustainability Program, the Women's Center, and the Chief Diversity Office. Um, also, my sincere gratitude to our co-sponsors of the CUNY Graduate Center for hosting this talk in this space, um, the Sociology Department, and the International Migration Studies Program. Thank you to everyone for your support of this tremendous, immensely uh, important talk. So I'd like to now turn things over to Dr. Van Tran, Associate Professor of Sociology, International Migration Studies at the Graduate Center. Van, all yours. Thank you, Professor Pan, and welcome, uh, Professor Nadia Kim. I'm delighted to be here uh, today um, to share in this important talk. Um, I have the privilege, obviously, of introducing Professor Kim. Uh, Nadia Kim is Professor of Asian and Asian American Studies and by courtesy sociology at Loyola Marymount University. Her research focuses on U.S. race and citizenship injustices concerning Korean and Asian Americans as well as South Koreans in South Korea. Nativist racism in LA, immigrant women activists, environmental racism and classism, comparative racialization of Latinx, Asian Americans, and Black Americans, and neo-imperialism. All of these themes you will see represented in the book talk today. Professor Kim is the author of the multiple award-winning first book, Imperial, Imperial Citizens, Koreans and Race, from Seoul to, to LA, published by Stanford Press in 2008. And she is the author, most recently, of Refusing Death, Immigrant Women and the Fight for Environmental Justice in LA. As you could tell, her work is intimately connected to LA um, and the immigrant communities there. And this was published by Stanford Press in spring 2021. Refusing Death um, is the winner of at least four awards, including the 2002 SA Asian America Book Award um, from the SA Asia and Asian American section 
and the 2022 Distinguished Contribution to Scholarship Book Award sponsored by the NSA Section on Race, Gender, and Class, as well as honorable, honorable mentions in two other uh, book award sections um, of two other book awards from the Section on Latino Sociology and the Sociology of Emotions. So you could see that um, this book has impact across multiple fields, not not just in the field of immigration and race. And it's appropriate that we have her here today as our speaker for American Studies because her research on race, assimilation, and racial attitudes are central to our understanding of the ever-evolving American society. Um, she has also organized as an activist on issues of immigrant rights, affirmative action policy, environmental justice, some of which she has also included and incorporated into her own research. Her work also speaks beyond academia um, and has appeared in NPR, uh, Radio Korea, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, The Korea Times, The Chronicle Higher Education, and beyond. So we are delighted um, to offer the opportunity um, for all of us to hear about her work and to welcome her to Brooklyn College virtually and to the CUNY Grad Center virtually. Um, so with that, uh, Professor Kim, the floor is yours and welcome. Thank you so much. Um, sorry for all the adjustments I was having to make, but um, this is my first time Zooming from this room. So <laughs> thanks for your patience. Um, I'm going to be very quick in my uh, acknowledgments. I'm very grateful to um, all of you, as you know, but just to spare time, I want to thank Diana Pan, Van Tran, the Wolf Institute. Thank you, Gaston Alonso, for being here and all the units at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center. Uh, I know you guys are in a busy time of the semester, so I'm very grateful uh, for your time and being here. I don't take that for granted. Um, very quickly, I just wanna say that I dedicate this talk to my mentor, uh, Dr. G. Reginald Daniel, who recently passed away um, over the Thanksgiving holiday. He's the reason I am a sociologist speaking to you right now. So the questions that animate my talk, um, come not just from my specific interest in this particular topic, but it comes from the fact that it's interrelated with so many other issues. So uh, as you know, environmental racism, environmental classism is often not uh, discussed in relation to climate justice, but it is uh, absolutely connected insofar as if we don't deal with uh, issues of environmental destruction in our urban centers, not just in terms of you know, the broader globe as we always think about it, um, we're never gonna be able to resolve this issue, which is a catastrophe. Um, COVID-19 demonstrated that we also have to understand the import of environmental racism and classism, because what is the main reason that it was predominantly black Latinx Pacific Islander and indigenous communities that were hospitalized and dying of COVID-19. It's because their health has already been greatly compromised by disproportionate hyperpollution. Okay. So um, I just want to go into 
briefly the way in which global cities like Los Angeles, and this is not restricted to Los Angeles, by the way, this is also about New York, New Jersey, this is about Virginia, this is about Houston, this is about Seattle and San Francisco, and it's, it's you know, a number of cities um, given globalization, which is that because we don't manufacture anything in the U.S. anymore, and many of you are probably familiar with the, you know, deindustrialization, the rust belt, right, uh, the transition to a service economy, Everything that we pretty much buy or most everything now has to be manufactured elsewhere and it has to be shipped all the way to the United States and then shipped to, you know, the Costco's, the Target's, the Best Buy's, the car dealerships all over the country. So one of the things that people don't know about Los Angeles is it's actually the largest urban oil field in the nation. Okay, we always think about the Kardashians and the Lakers and, you know, the Glitterati. But really, we have to think about how so much of American oil is actually from California and other cities where we have this goods movement apparatus, where we actually have to figure out how to move goods, right, that come from China and other manufacturing nations so that you and I can thrive and survive, right, um, requires oil. So there always has to be oil refining, oil storage, all of that within proximity, okay? So um, this is just a picture down here, if you can see my cursor, of how close oil refineries are, essentially the neighbors of people of color, immigrants of color, um, often lower income communities, right? Um, this oil refining, et cetera, is needed to power the ships that come from far-flung manufacturing nations like China, which is the most prominent, right, into the ports, right? So um, just like the other cities I mentioned, Los Angeles has a major port. And because it's the closest port to China, much of what you guys buy, um, and have access to in New York actually also came from California, okay? Then the ships that run on diesel, um, besides polluting on the way from China all the way over here, uh, pollute at the ports because there's so much just, um, you know, basically running idle, right? Ships and other trucks running idle, Diesel pollution is rampant, okay? Then you put it on these, you know, uh, Mack trucks, 16 wheelers, et cetera, that have to ship the goods all over the country. Those also run on diesel. And actually, they're also transported on trains, which also run on diesel. And so the communities that I've studied and many of the communities that are afflicted throughout the United States uh, are often living in near uh, these diesel polluting uh concentrations, okay? So um, what I want to share is my data and method, okay? And I'm going to have to go over this pretty quickly. Um, so between 2008 and 2013, uh, the breaks in the middle are to give birth to my two children, but I did almost 300 hours of ethnographic participant observation in the movements. Um, so that involved anywhere from co-organizing with them to actually um, attending meetings, attending protests, going to public comments when they were face-to-face -face with 
the corporate um, polluters or the port. Um, and they were also face-to-face -face with the regulatory agencies. And I put that in quotes and I'll, I'll share with you in a moment why I put that in quotes, okay? I also did close to 50 interviews with um, the leaders of the activist movements, as well as people who are either members of the community-based organizations CBOs, or they were allies. So they weren't necessarily members, but they were allies, okay? And um, I want to make very clear that the communities that actually were organizing in LA, in this goods movement kind of oil belts, right? They mostly organized separately. And a lot of that has to do with language issues, right? The largely a Mexican-American movement um, spoke Spanish and it was a predominantly Spanish speaking movement. The largely Asian American movement was Philippinex led. There were other um, people of Asian descent in the movement, but predominantly Philippinex led, and this is mostly an English speaking movement, okay? Um, so there were also multiracial organizations like Communities for a Better Environment, which is the most well-known um, in California and across the globe, and that tends to be more multiracial. So Latinx, Asian, uh, Pacific Islander, Black American, Okay, but the groups that I predominantly worked with were Long Beach Alliance for Children with Asthma, Community Partners Council, and Coalition for a Safe Environment. Okay, they're mostly based in and organizing for and with um, Latinx immigrants, mostly working class, mostly undocumented. But, you know, there's a minority of those who are middle class, they were citizens, etc. Okay, the other major group that I worked with was People's Corps. And this was based uh, in Carson, which has a large uh, concentration of Filipinx Americans and immigrants. It was also based in LA nearby. This is a more mixed middle-class community and it's a little bit more multi-ethnic, multi-racial, right? So in addition to Filipinx, there's also white, black, Latinx, et cetera, in that area, okay? Um, and then with Communities for a Better Environment, as I mentioned, it was more multiracial. I mostly worked with their youth program. Um, so you're going to be hearing from some of the youth uh, today. Okay. Um, and the third major form of data and methods I used was documents analysis. So I did analysis of hundreds of pages of agendas and minutes to presentations. And this really helped me kind of calibrate what I saw as an ethnographer, what I was hearing as an interviewer, um, and what they were writing in their actual documentation, okay? So the main question that I wanted to explore uh, for this talk today is when it comes to environmental justice and the intersecting dynamics within. So I'm not just gonna focus on race, but I'm also talking about race, ethnicity, nation, class, gender, okay? That's not gonna uh, permeate everything that I discuss, but I'm always interested in the intersecting dimensions, both top down and bottom up, okay? So when it comes to environmental justice movement and the intersecting dynamics within, what role do emotions and affect play, both for the top down system, which I often refer to as the elites or elite institutions, and how do emotions matter for the bottom up, okay, which is the Asian and Latina immigrant activists. Now, as many of you know, social movements has been a major uh, part of the study of, I'm sorry, emotions has been a major part of the study of social movements. But increasingly, um, and sort of uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva's leadership of this, we've been studying 
emotions and affect in relation to racism and white supremacy. And it's um, a major part of the study of gender, work, family, spearheaded by Ar Arlie Hochschild, okay? But I'm also interested in looking at how it's central to social movements like environmental justice uh, and also how central it is to immigrant uh, identity, politics, mobilizations, okay? I wanted just to give you a pictorial sense of what ports look like. So this is the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach. It's almost like a mini city unto itself. You can see here all those cargo ships, those massive ships that come in from manufacturing countries that are far, far away with all their cargo containers, right? Um, and as I mentioned, you know, uh, it's so much goods that it requires all this crane structure. It requires constant idling, lots and lots of diesel pollution, okay? So if you're not familiar with Los Angeles, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with LAX, right? LAX is up here. And so much of my research was done down here. And Although, for example, this is a very wealthy neighborhood and L.A. is kind of interesting in that, you know, we have these kind of spread apart communities that are also next to each other at the same time. You have this um, working class West Long Beach down here. Wilmington is one of the communities I worked in, predominantly working class Latinx immigrants, mostly undocumented, um, that are very close to this port, right? The port of uh, L.A. and Long Beach. This is where a lot of our goods are coming through. Okay. The Carson is up here, the Philippinex and mixed, uh, largely middle-class uh, community that I mentioned, and the oil refinery storage, et cetera, uh, vortex is basically here, okay? Let me just make sure this is, okay. So um, what I want to just provide as the broader framing um, and the sort of conceptual map that I'm working with is what I term in the book bio-neglect, okay? Uh, you can also kind of consider it bio-violence because what I'm arguing in the book is that the neglect of these immigrant of color populations um, and these movements that are mostly led by women and mothers, okay, um, is that that in and of itself is a form of violence. So Capitalism, and what I specify more is neoliberal racial capitalism, is the reason why we put consumerism, the market, um, and all the apparatuses that we need to hold that up, such as goods movement that is prematurely killing um, all people, but especially immigrants of color, um, as a form of neoliberal, neoliberal racial capitalist violence, uh, especially in the form of neglect, right? Because they know that they're doing this, but even though these populations are prematurely dying and they're prematurely getting asthma and getting cancer and getting sick, there is still a neglect of those populations. Uh, huh? I already set it up for you. So all the data is already ready to go. And I'll walk you through this. Oh, then... can someone tell you, Jen, that we can all hear him? <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> It's okay. I understand that happens. Um, so, uh, but then with regard to uh, actually doing something about that, right? Um, there's 
systemic neglect, okay? The reason why I make sure to stress the word racial capitalism and the racial state is because working from the tradition of um, Cedric Robinson and the broader um, intellectual tradition of Black radicalism, right? That capitalism has uh, originated in racism, okay? And racism and racial differentiation and hierarchization has always been central to the operation of capital capitalism and the operation of the state, okay? So when immigrants of color are those that are the neglected, the um, those who are allowed to be um, killed, right? That's a form of neoliberal racial capitalism and the racial state being bioneglectful and bioviolent, okay? So don't be scared off by all these terms because th that fundamental point is quite simple, all right? Um, and what I argue more specifically is that in addition to uh, causing premature death, and that phrase um, comes from uh, Ruthie uh, Wilson-Gilmore, right? Um, Ruthie Wilson, sorry. Um, they're also committing what we would consider physical and emotional assaults on these populations, because it's not just getting asthma or getting sick or dying earlier than you should. It's also the incredible emotional stressors, the emotional burdens that one has to go through as a result of that. Um, and as a result of often the lack of care for undocumented immigrants or low-income immigrants or the lack of race-conscious, culture-conscious care for Latinx and Asian and Pacific Islander uh, immigrants. And then also the way in which uh, these bottom-up populations really marshal emotional resources, emotional networks, and their own form of emotional power as a way to fight back against those emotional assaults, okay? So one way we can kind of think about this um, is in uh, playing with Foucault is to think about let's sick, right? Foucault really talks about, well, the state in particular um, allows populations in a way that we can call let die, right? But I also want us to think about it's not just death and premature death. It's also letting them get sick, okay? So again, this is part of bio-neglect and bioviolence. So one of the first things I wanted to talk about is um, the way in which even some of the young youth activists talked about the way that they embodied this oil refinery industrial complex, right? And this was quite prominent in an interview conversation I had with Lily, who is actually an unauthorized Filipina um, youth ethnic, okay? She worked with Communities for a Better Environment. And she says here, it wasn't until high school, like I started going to people's houses, I started hanging out with people, and like I would see that where they would live was right next to a refinery. Like all, she starts chuckling, my friends live next to a refinery. And I remember like it was frustrating. Like as a child, I remember when they would flare. So I just want to tell you really quickly what flaring is. Flaring is when oil refineries like this, which you can see is adjacent to a soccer field, um, they do uh, a toxic emission of all kinds of uh, chemical gases, okay? And they're supposed to do it very sparingly, and they're supposed to often do it um, in, uh, you know, hours when people are not most awake and most active. But what ends up happening is because there's so little regulation of the oil refinery complex, 
and or there's so few repercussions that they actually illegally flare all the time, okay? Um, and a lot of times they do a lot of flaring at night because then there's less people witnessing it and then less people calling the government regulatory agencies uh, to report uh, against them, okay? So she said, as a child, when they would flare, I actually believed that that's how you made clouds. And I asked, oh, really? We both chuckled. She said, I would look at them and tell my mom, oh, look, there's my cloud. Okay. So when she's talking about, you know, this life of embodying oil, what she's saying is that not only was she frustrated emotionally because these oil refineries are literally uh, next to their houses. They're basically their neighbors. They're um, these mini cities. I'm sure you've seen oil refineries. They're gargantuan, right? Um, so she talks about kind of that emotional frustration of feeling like uh, you couldn't escape them if you wanted to. And they kind of took over the neighborhood. But when she's talking about embodying oil, she's also really saying that they seem so omnipresent and powerful that they almost become nature, right? That they are the reason for the formation of cumulus clouds. That's where nature comes from, right? It comes from these oil refineries. So I think this notion um, whereby a lot of the activists and residents, whenever they talked, they talked about embodying the goods movement apparatus, the oil refinery complex. Um, it was very interesting that these kinds of ways of articulating were very commonplace uh, across the three years that I worked with them, okay? Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out, especially about the top-down, is the emotive power uh, of quote-unquote regulatory agencies, um, you know, as well as industry. But I want to focus on um, the regulatory agencies for a second, okay, which is that what they often do, and, and this is, again, a form of neoliberalism, right? Because if I were to define neoliberalism in a kind of a succinct way and in the way that pertains most to my talk, it's really the withering of the social contract. It's the withering of the social welfare state, right? Which means that all the sort of health impacts, environmental pollution, uh, the labor exploitation, immigrant and refugee exploitation that happens by way of capitalism and other forms of systemic oppression um, are no longer cared for. Uh, they're no longer taken care of by the state in the way we did prior to the 1980s and especially the rise of Reaganism. Okay. So, we no longer have strong um, uh, social programs in healthcare, in social work, in education, uh, and, and the list goes on and on, right? But we kind of just allow individuals to kind of sink or swim and basically say that you're on your own. And whether you fail or not, uh, the onus is on you, okay? Um, and the market basically now becomes, um, you know, the king and mar the market dictates everything. And essentially, um, these regulatory agencies and, for example, the oil refineries have to now kind of scramble for the way that they're going to uh, address these activists and these movements that essentially say to them, you're killing us prematurely, right? Uh, we're dying over here. Um, our kids are getting asthma as young as two or one. And so what they've often done in this 
strategic move of emotive power is that they'll co-opt the movement. And oftentimes these are these are political strategies and a form of political rhetoric that came from the women themselves, the mothers of the importance of the ethics of care, the importance of the ethics of concern for one's community, for one's extended family, for one's, you know, larger racial and ethnic group, right? And so they've stolen that, appropriated it, right? And now what they do is they constantly talk about how much they're concerned about these communities. They even call them environmental justice communities, which to me, even though lots of scholars have lifted and adopted that language, it doesn't make any sense to me because these communities don't have environmental justice. So why are you calling them environmental justice communities, right? Um, they often provide uh, funding to the local schools, to local hospitals that are caring for the sick and the dying, right? They fund local police um, uh, stations. They'll fund fire departments, right? And it's a way of buying silence. But all of this kind of PR work and all of this funding um, and charity work, by the way, they'll they'll have huge community carnivals while they're They'll draw a big, huge pumpkin on the smokestack at the oil refinery. They'll give out free backpacks and school supplies and all of that, right, is to demonstrate how much they care, how concerned they are, right? And in that rhetoric um, and in those uh, sort of community strategies and emotional strategies they deploy, they're basically claiming to work hard on fixing a problem that pr they pretend not to have created, okay? So let's really think about the, the mental gymnastics we have to go through to really believe how much they care, right? These are, for example, oil refineries, right? <laughs> Who through oil and gas and staying committed to polluting um, and emitting carbon, in, carbon into the air through fossil fuels is saying we're working so hard on cleaning up your communities, on making the air more breathable. We care so much about climate justice, right? I mean, they created the problem of climate injustice, right? So they're not admitting we actually created climate injustice. We actually created your asthma and your cancer and your premature death. What they focus on is uh, we've, we're fixing the problem, we care so much, and therefore they take undue credit, okay? Now, one of the other staples of neoliberalism, I must stress, and this is why regulatory agencies are in quotes, under neoliberalism, there's much weaker regulation, okay? So prior to the 1980s, we had better regulation, we broke up monopolies, or at least there was attempts to do so, right? Um, but under neoliberalism, these air quality management districts, they're supposed to monitor and clean up the air, right? They're really favoring uh, industry, okay? And really prioritizing profit over these people, okay? Um, why do we have the crash in 2008? Because no one was regulating Wall Street, right? You can see it nested in all these broader problems. The other way in which you see the emotive power of the top down, especially under neoliberalism or neoliberal racial capitalism and the racial state, is in the false choices that this kind of system props up, right? So let me give you a very quick example. When I was working with Long Beach Alliance for Children with Asthma, they were absolutely shocked one day because the mostly Latina, mostly Mexican immigrant mothers said to them, I know we normally protest the schools that are that are built right next to the freeways 
Um, but this particular school that they're going to site right next to the diesel polluted freeway, we actually need because it is within walking distance. And because low income people often do not have cars or ready forms of transportation. And as you know, cities like Los Angeles have very poor uh, public transportation systems. They said, we're going to have to choose our kids getting sick over not being able to attend school at all and them not being able to get an education at all and then not being able to have upward mobility for our family, our community, right? So what I call this is a false choice, right? Why do we have freeways running in and through usually communities of color, right? A low-income communities. That's a choice, okay? So it's not as though we actually have to set up a school next to a freeway. The question should be, why do we have so many um, forms of polluting goods movement in and through and near communities of color, some of which are immigrant, okay? Um, why are we still relying on fossil fuels? These are false choices, right? But neoliberalism often presents these false choices, and they often say, using their emotive power, but we care, we're doing our best, you know, our hands are tied, we're trying to work with you guys, right? I mean, this is often the political strategy, okay? I want to give you a very interesting example of how much you have to suspend disbelief, right, in terms of this kind of mental gymnastics. Um, so this is Valero Oil. I took this straight from their website, okay? They're telling you how much they care about you, how much they care in particular about the most affected communities of color that um, live next to these refineries, right? And they care about the earth, right? So quoting from their website, it says, Valero ranked highest among independent refiners in Newsweek's magazine's 2017 green rankings of the top 500 U.S. publicly traded companies for environmental performance, okay? They boasted about how they recycle their water, they use corn, fat, things like that, oils, right? This is an oil and gas company, okay? <laughs> This is like Coca-Cola saying and boasting about the fact that they ranked highest in uh, a health ranking of the top 500 U.S. publicly traded companies for health performance. I mean, the irony, right, uh, is probably not lost on you and me. But the fact that their PR teams, they spend tons of money, uh, expend lots of effort on this kind of political strategizing goes to show how much they want to uh, marshal this notion of we care. We care so much right? Um, and we're doing the best that we can, okay? Uh, and it's, it's just incredible, right? By the way, this is not lost on the activists, um, but um, the companies really think that they're kind of uh, doing good convincing that way, okay? I want to give you a brief example of Suva Elementary. This is in Bell Garden, so this wasn't a community I studied per se, but it had very similar demographics as the working class Latinx uh, communities, and this is a chrome plating company that started in the early 50s that is blowing uh, contaminants all over Suva Elementary School, okay? And uh, CBE pro pro uh, prominently worked on this campaign. And um, as of today, I believe there are about 26 teachers, students, and staff that have gotten cancer, most of whom have died, um, 
And even though in the 1980s they had discovered, including the regulatory agency, um, that the children's uh, and the school's drinking water was poisoned by hexavalent chromium. I mean, that's just a carcinogen, right? It's a poison. Um, and it had leaked onto their campus. It wasn't until 2000 almost that they were able to shut this down, okay? So again, um, schools are also prominently affected. And one of the ways in which the immigrant movement I studied, led mostly by women and mothers, was very unique and interesting, is that they fused both the movement for environmental justice with the movement for school reform, which they also were quite active in, right? Um, and even though victories would come incredibly late and often too late, um, you know, not just deaths, but there were pregnancies that um, that ended because of this poisoning um, and just everyday sickness that was incredibly hard to bear. This is also an example of how regulatory agencies talk the good talk of we're doing everything that we can, but really they're not. Okay. So I want to point out the California Air Resources Board. This is often... Uh, a regulatory agency that is even thought of as by the activists as being one of the better ones, right? They actually do kind of know what's going on on the ground in terms of uh, pollution, and they tend to act more. But very problematic is language like this, which I again took straight from their website. Carb wrote, California has made significant progress to reduce our exposure to harmful air pollutants, the result of regulations and programs based on sound science. These achievements reflect a collective and bipartisan effort over the past half century that involves a legislature, the government, air districts, they're the regulators, regulated industries, so like, you know, oil and gas, and the public. Uh, we have come a long way, but childhood asthma rates are still above the national average, so obviously it's a concern. And what I just want to point out here in what seems like really boring uh, government speak, right, is that what they're essentially doing is that they're collapsing the public and they're not even specifying the quote unquote environmental justice communities or the long legacy of social justice movements by these immigrants of color, immigrant women of color. They collapse them as basically equally contributing to fighting this pollution as the government the legislature, the politicians, the, the regulatory uh, districts, and even just as much as oil and gas, okay? These achievements reflect a collective and bipartisan effort. Again, really taking credit away from the activists and the movements themselves, just like um, these agencies and oil and gas co-op the movement, take their language and strategies of care and concern, and they act as if it was always theirs all along, okay? And they do this, as I write here on the bottom, to humanize themselves, right? To basically cover up, to cover over broader bio-neglect. Um, so there's a form of double speak here, insofar as, as I mentioned earlier, they're the ones who created the problem, Industry and the air districts and the legislature, they created the problem, right? But what they're going to make you focus on is the fact that they're fixing it just as much, and they've done just as much work as the uh, social movements, okay? That were really the first to fight back and have been the ones fighting the most, okay? And obviously in the most progressive and grassroots manner. They don't uh, admit that there is really no fix to the problem except really moving beyond 
the narrow scope of how we've been taught to think, which is that we still need fossil fuels, that we still need goods movement. And so we have to put it in these communities of color. They don't really talk about a fix, right? There is no fix. Um, and essentially what they're doing is they're not giving credit to the resistance movements that are really um, at the helm of why government and oil and gas are doing anything at all about this, okay? And what it does, it reminds me of the language of the racial state. When the United States says, oh, you know, we pass civil rights legislation, we pass the Voting Rights Act, right? Giving themselves credit for uh, achieving, you know, greater racial uh, equity or racial justice, right? No, that credit needs to go to the everyday grassroots people who sacrifice their jobs, you know, their home life, um, to sacrifice their bodies, right, in the South and beyond to achieve civil rights, okay? So again, it's part of a broader pattern, okay? Um, what I want to talk about and show is the strategies, um, these were the emotive sort of affective strategies that we saw from the top down. I'm going to have to go through these relatively quickly, but I think each of them gives a snapshot. Um, so I talked to Ben, who is a Filipino-American. He was the coordinator for People's Corps, which is sadly disbanded um, around the time of 2017. And um, what he said was, I think for the most part, Oh, I'm sorry, 2020. I don't know what I'm talking about. I think for the most part, they don't really listen to the Filipino women. I think especially if they're not speaking their language of business or just like their capitalist language, I think maybe women have a stronger tendency to speak more about, you know, business affecting my family and my community. And I'm going to finish reading off of um, the slide. Um, but if you think about it, women actually have to care about their community, okay? Um, and for men, this is considered a weakness. So uh, they're not speaking the language of capitalism or patriarchy. And so I think this is a really interesting example of the way in which the elites in corporate America and the elites in the government agencies um, basically are exhibiting a form of apathy. And it's a specific form of sexist and obviously sexist, racist, classist, anti-immigrant apathy, because they just look at these Filipino women or these uh, Mexican immigrant women, and they just think, you know, you don't speak our language, the language that we prioritize, okay? Another uh, moment happened in the field, and this was uh, an affective strategy of guilting by way of condescension. Uh, many of us were shocked in this moment because what this meeting was, was a meeting whereby they allowed the, this was predominantly Latina immigrant activists to come to a public comment and to talk about their um, dismay over the widening of one of the freeways. The 710 freeway, for those of you who don't know, uh, LA is the most cancerous freeway in the United States. And that's because of all the goods movement uh, to bring those goods from the port to all those stores and lots that I was talking about earlier. And they, um, we're talking about how much cancer they and their neighbors were getting, how sick their little kids were. And this is how one of the male representatives of the government committee tasked with dealing with the widening of the most cancerous freeway in L.A. and, the, and California. I mean, I'm sorry, the United States, so that more and more trucks and goods could be transported on it. 
actually said, you know, I had cancer for many years and it was very difficult for me and my family too. You guys are not the only ones who get cancer and cancer is not just caused by air pollution. Okay. And he said this with feeling. And when I say feeling, I'm obviously drawing on the theme of emotional politics, but he was quite angry. He was indignant. He was exasperated. Okay. And, you know, then the whole room kind of, you know, um, explodes uh, based on this very kind of uh, biased and sensitive comment, right? Another major strategy um, that was used by the top down, and we don't talk about the top down enough in terms of emotive politics, emotive power and strategy, is there was always a lot of like disbelief, like incredulity, right? Annoyance and mockery. And in a very terse statement by Teresa, who is an unauthorized Mexican ethnic, a mother, she worked with Labaca and CPC. She said, our Pueblo is speaking for what it needs. A lot of the time, the people who are supposed to be listening and helping the community, they listen and they just laugh. So this was something that she conveyed, but this was also something that I observed over and again at protests and public comments and meetings, which is there's a lot of kind of just like laughing, dismissing. Um, there's a lot of incredulity. There's a lot of uh, walking out, looking at phones. Um, whenever these uh, immigrants and uh, immigrant women in particular would come up and testify or, or resist what basically was the party line from the top down, okay? I want to kind of shift gears now and talk about the bottom-up strategies that uh, the immigrants, uh, and especially the immigrant women, would often use in relation to, example, to top-down apathy, right? And so what I want to just stress is there's kind of three different scales on which bottom-up emotive politics is happening. Um, in these environmental justice fights, right? They're happening by way of kind of resisting the emotive power plays uh, by uh, oil and gas, um, other corporations and the government, but they're also on a scale of support, emotional support for each other, okay? Um, and then they're also on a scale of actually strategizing amongst each other using emotive power dynamics, okay? And so what I love about this one quote by Cindy, who is a Samoan American teacher uh, who worked with People's Corps, uh, especially in Carson, it kind of captures it all, okay? So just to kind of set up this moment for you. Uh, this was at a public comment, and it was just this perfunctory public comment where BP Arco, which is oil and gas, if you don't know, um, was just wanting to renew their permit to operate, okay? So, you know, they were just basically talking about how they were doing all the right things uh, environmentally, uh, you know, due diligence to the surrounding communities, etc., um, that... You know, once the public comment starts, after we hear all the statistics and everything, um, a Japanese-American woman, she's elderly, she walks up to the mic and she says, you know, I'm not saying that you caused my husband's cancer, but my husband worked at your refinery his entire life. Soon after he retired, he got cancer and he died. So, you know, what ends up happening is that the officials, right, from BP Arco, they basically don't have any empathy. There's a, a big empathy deficit that's very clear if we think about the feeling rules, as Arlie Hochschild says, we've been taught as a society, right, and feeling norms, emotion work, right, that that deficit was quite stark. 
And they started talking about how BP ARCO was within their allowable limits of uh, sickness and death. So one of the things we have to understand, and this is very much is reminiscent of Foucault, which is this notion that um, the state is admitting and they're um, basically practicing the deaths of certain populations being allowable, the sickness of certain populations being allowable. So when BPRCO says we're within our allowable limits of cancer and all this stuff, that's essentially what they're talking about is biopower, right? So in response, the Samoan American teacher activist yells, I am so angry. I'm so tired of being sick, of seeing sick children at my elementary school where I work. And she lists all their ailments including bloody noses, uh, constant uh, headaches. She said, you know, it's very possible that her husband's cancer was caused by all this pollution. And she turns to the Japanese American elderly widow and she says, I'm really sorry for your loss, okay? So you can see here the apathy that she's actually resisting because Cindy knows all the chemical names, all the statistics, she knows the illegal fling, she knows all that. But what she decides to focus on is an emotive strategy, right, of resisting their kind of empathy deficit. She practices an emotional political strategy by making sure to provide that empathy and that emotional support to that Japanese-American widow that BP Arco does not, right? And she also talks about um, the basically the toll, right, that living um, in this, you know, sort of goods movement complex and oil complex um, has taken on her, uh, on her students, on her fellow teachers at work, okay? So I'm going to um, go through one more slide, and then I'm going to go to the conclusion. So one of the ways in which this affects the immigrant activists, in particular the women and mothers, is that instead of defining citizenship as it's about us getting papers, or it's about us, you know, really being active in electoral politics, or maybe even running for office ourselves, that's not what citizenship means both to the documented, uh, mostly documented Asian and Pacific Islander immigrant activists and to the mostly undocumented Latina activists, okay? What citizenship means to them is the politics of emotional support, right? Because their lives and their organizing is centered around the fact that they're experiencing not just physical, but emotional violence and physical and emotional neglect from industry in the state, okay? So one of the um, very clear statements that... Um, these immigrant activists made is that oftentimes oil or industry would, I'm sorry, the agencies would say, why don't you guys just move, right? If you can live in an apartment or a house in this area, you can move to a little bit cleaner area, right? And these women and actors were indignant that they would never move, right? So emotional support doesn't just mean what we just saw Cindy, the teacher, do for the Japanese-American widow. It's also a form of, I am going to continue politically advocating for my neighbor and my community, even if it kills me, even if it's killing me and my children and my family quietly, okay? So one of the responses to, why don't you just move, Quip, by Tanya, who was a Mexican immigrant um, activist, she would say, why would I move? I'd be leaving them all alone. And although this is a very short and terse statement, it's very telling in that, you know what? Yes, we are dying, but I have an, a responsibility, right, to be there for my community politically. Uh, and one of the major ways they define that kind of form of political citizenship was emotional support.
right? Not just advocating for them in terms of organizing in the standard way that we think of it, okay? So like, um, so for my concluding slide, what I want to focus on is the fact that in many ways, if we kind of build out from these moments on the ground, from these interviews, from these um, immigrant-led, immigrant women-led movements for environmental justice against environmental racism and classism in particular, what we see is that these are instances, right, of the way in which systemic racism, classism, sexism intersects, right, to basically have controlling images, but also to subordinate um, Asian and Latinx communities, in particular, these women, right? So let me give you an example. So whenever the Asian or Latina women were crying or passive at any of these political events, um, they could definitely be seen as effeminate, as those are just moms. Oh, there's that passive model minority. There's that working class Latina. What does she know, right? When they would be angry rather than crying, they would definitely be seen and treated as the dragon lady Asian, the hyper-masculine Asian lady, or the fiery Latina who's like a typical brusque working class person who's hyper-masculine, right? And these are just examples of the way in which these forms of systemic um, subjugation depend on seeing and treating people of color, in particular women of color, as more in their bodies and more in their emotions. In opposition to that, whiteness and maleness, especially white maleness, is um, the paragon of being mental, rational, and therefore professional, more civilized. None of this is unfamiliar to you. This has been going on since the beginning, right? But what this also does is, is it allows them to kind of justify their apathy, right? Because apathy from our whiteness, maleness point of view is more professional than all this stuff you guys are doing up here, okay? Our policy responses are more rational. Therefore, they're more scientific, right? So none of this is to be dismissed or to be underappreciated because these are all the ways systemically that, um, you know, intersectional oppression happens, okay? But the most important take-home point is that these movements that I've studied in other movements, and it's important to say that immigrant movements are often on the cutting edge of in many of our global cities, but we don't study them enough, right? They're really complicating um, these power structures. Sorry for that late ad. Because what they're doing is they're exposing, right, the emotive power dynamics. They're demanding respect and they're demanding empathy in a way that moves beyond these um, one-dimensional um, controlling images of Asian and Latina and other women of color um, that have existed since the beginning. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I'd be happy to welcome any questions at this point. I'm going to stop my share. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Nadia. That was amazing. Uh, you gave Thank us you. so much to think about and the <laughs> courage of these women. You know, mm -hmm. it's truly matter. We are now opening up for Q&A, so please um, use the raise hand feature if you would, and or put questions in the chat box so that I can at least have a list of speakers and or. Um, um. As Van said, that was incredible. Um, so 
just brilliant. I can't wait to read the book. Um, Thank you. Yeah, seriously. But um, I suppose what interested me was these regulatory um, yeah. organizations that you talked about. So yeah. are those actually um, kind of like related to the EPA? Like are those official or are they actually within the refineries? Like who? Yeah. who That's a great question. Yeah. So they're government. So they're separate from industry, right? So they're separate from the refineries. And they're separate from the EPA, which, by the way, came about through environmental justice movements, right, starting especially in the 80s, because EPA is at the federal level, right? These air quality management districts, and sorry, I just, in 45 minutes, there's so much in my book that I want to say, so I I don't necessarily go over all this context, so I apologize for not providing that in the beginning. Um, But what they are is they manage these particular areas, right, within states, right, within cities, And so, for example, there's the South Coast Air Quality Management District, SQAQMD, which is the one that, um, SCAQMD, which is the one that most of these immigrants have to contend with. Um, There's a different one, you know, in Central California, there's a different one up north. And what they're doing is they're supposed to, right, this is their task, they're supposed to regulate the pollution that comes out of industry such as oil and gas. It could be incinerators, medical waste incinerators. It could be toxic chemical plants, plastic manufacturers. I mean, you know, there's so many things we make, right, that are that are quite uh, hazardous to our health. Um, and so what they're supposed to be doing is they're supposed to be sort of helping establish what that limit is of allowable pollution, right? So when you establish that limit of allowable pollution, you're also establishing an allowable number of sickness and death, okay? So the reason why under neoliberalism and this movement towards deregulation or lack of regulation, right? Why that matters is because the market has become so sacrosanct and dictates everything that these AQMD or other government regulatory agencies often set up limits that are still quite hazardous to the communities and the people's health. I mean, Think about how this is affecting everyone in L.A., right? Everyone in L.A. is basically breathing the worst air quality in the country, right? But then think about how hazardous it is for the people that live right next to the oil refinery, the freeway, the train yard, and the port, right? And then all these other manufacturers. I mean, I can't even name them all. In this area that I studied, there were slaughterhouses. I mean, it's just the, you know, battery recyclers, the list goes on and on and on, right? That chrome plating company I showed you in Bell Gardens, right? So the limit is not strong enough, right? And then the target can constantly be moved in terms of allowable um, illness and allowable death, right? So if I can just give you a quick example, um, basically, one of the organizations I worked with really made sure that the AQMD, and I think they even got like Sacramento, which is the state legislature here, to pay attention to Wilmington, which is one of the communities I studied, because because they were experiencing a great deal of cancer from the toxins from the oil refineries, even though um, there's only supposed to be um, you know, a certain number of cancer, uh, uh, contractions of cancer in Wilmington. Basically, Wilmington was experiencing three times that 
which is an enormous number when we're talking about cancer, right? So how are these regulatory agencies actually regulating if in Wilmington they're experiencing three times the amount of cancer they're supposed to be experiencing, right? So in essence, right, um, these what a lot of environmental justice scholars or environmental racism scholars will say is that the regulatory agencies and industry are essentially cooperating, right? They're basically in bed together. And so when, and, and that's, that's what neoliberalism is, they're in bed together, right? And so when these activists are fighting back, I mean, in many ways, and I, I talk about this at length in the book, but they really have this ambivalent relationship to the state. Because on the one hand, you have to kind of go to the state, right? Because the state decides not just where all of these things are going to be placed, but what the allowable limits are going to be and if they're going to execute that, right? Um, but at the same time, they know that the state is responsible, for the, the premature sickness and death. So, you know, it's a very, very like ambivalent relationship to the state that I found quite fascinating. Thank you. That's yeah, yeah extraordinary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks for your question. I think Katie, oh, oh so, uh, yeah, I don't know if I should answer Katie's first or go to Carol's. Uh, what do you think, Diana Van? Just Carol and then I'll call on Katie. Okay, perfect. Hi, Carol. Hi. Um, it's a wonderful uh, presentation, and I really touched by it. Uh, so through the bottom-up movement of, yeah. against the environmental uh, polluters, mm -hmm. is there any creative strategy? For instance, uh, the data sometimes just accumulated by the officials. Yes, yeah. And so therefore, the activists create their own data mm -hmm. in order to, as a way to talk back. Mm -hmm. uh, but because the poor uh, the conditions uh, they're living in, yeah. they have a lot of constraint. Was there anything that exists that they gather their data other than sickness, but also air quality data? Yes. Uh, that collaborating with professionals, yes. uh, organization to yeah. present different. Uh, so yes, but that's. Thank you for the answer. Another question is mm -hmm. how they build a momentum. Is that yes. each way there's a pollution? They will gather together and then go and protest. So they're kind of a seasonal, or is there? You know, so I'm just curious. Yeah, that's a very good question. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to answer the first question, um, yeah. So what they would often do is um, they would often call them. Um, well, let me talk kind of let me talk more broadly than I'm going to narrow down a little bit. So the activists did have some partnerships in particular with UCLA and USC. Yes, and in particular, it was usually like one professor or mm -hmm. a few that would spearhead. Right. These research studies that they would do that would basically. Um, sort of um, contest right? <laughs> the data and the research that, for example, oil and gas would provide or the, uh, you know, air quality management districts, i.e. the government would provide, right? Um, and they would, for example, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Manuel Pastor's work. Um, he's at USC. He does a lot of work and, and his work with a lot of other um, co-authors um, 
found, right, that if you lived within one mile of a freeway, not only did your chance of asthma, you know, uh, peak exponentially, but it also was heart disease. No one had really linked particulate matter um, from soot and diesel to heart disease, but that stuff also affects your heart, right? We always think of it like in terms of lungs and throat and things like that, but we really have to think about the heart. And so that kind of data could definitely contest and layer and complexify, you know, what agencies, government agencies and what, you know, um, the uh, industry show, right? Um, Now, one of the other things I have to point out though, is that sometimes government agencies have the data and and they know it's bad, but they don't act on it. Right. So let me give you an example. Remember that Bell Elementary School I showed you Mm -hmm. when the government agency went to that school in 1988, they said, oh, my God, these levels of hexavalent chromium are so high. Right. What did they do? Nothing. They said it's not high enough. Right. Again, it's based on that kind of moving target of what is an allowable limit. Right. And so um, all those kids and teachers died, right? So, um, you know, in terms of the kinds of science they provide, they do have university partnerships, which is great. And one of the things I want to advocate for, and CUNY, I think, does do this, it'd be great if they do more, is community and university partnerships, right? Um, now, the other way is they have these things called bucket, brigade, bu- bucket brigades, and it's kind of street science. There's a lot of interesting research uh, and work on street science. There's a book by Jason Coburn I'd really recommend. And it's where these immigrant activists go out and they work with these community-based organizations who have more resources, right? And they get their own map monitors, these things called P-Track monitors, and they'll go monitor the air at high peak truck driving times, right? The mothers will go out there sometimes with their kids and they count the number of trucks and they'll go do that regularly, okay? So, and then the way that they galvanize other people to join the movement, which I think is your second question, is that they would take their data and the university partner data and they would present that to the community activists, right? Many of whom are undocumented. So they do not want to get involved in politics, nor do many of them have the time, right? Um, Being able to do this also requires time, right? And resources. So, and a lot of them think, oh, the system has been so um, unjust to us. What is it going to do if I join this movement? We might now be deported or singled out or detained or whatnot, right? And so they kind of naturalize the asthma in their kids or the cancers in the community. Oh, they just got it, right? They just got it. it. We can't really pinpoint, right? And so what these activists do is they force these residents to really rethink that. And to think, oh, wow, these this data, these statistics, right, the epidemiological studies, wow, it does show that there can be a link, right, to why my kid got asthma and the freeway or the rail yard or the port or the oil refinery or whatnot, right? And the reason why that's so powerful is because one of the major strategies, I didn't have a chance to mention this in my talk, that um, oil and gas and the regulatory agencies will use is, well, can you prove that BP Arco caused your cancer? Can you prove the direct connection? Nobody can prove that, right? Pollutants come in a cascade of pollutants, right? And so that's like a very strategic way in which they uh, basically um, absolve themselves of responsibility and blame, 
right? Mm -hmm. But at least if through street science and through partnerships with universities, you can show patterns, right? Clusters. Um, what they do is they'll, they'll give tours to regular people like me or students or whatever of toxic hotspots, right? Throughout the communities where you see concentrations of illness. Um, and so that's the kind of science that they use. Now, just as a final note about galvanizing the community, not only do they use that as a strategy, but they use the emotional support networks I was talking about earlier. Cause I remember when I was, cause I, I've been an organizer for a while before I did this project, right? And I just thought to myself, why are we spending so much time doing workshops on how to look nice, professional, or make healthy food, or exercising, or like, why are we spending so much time on this, right? Like, we've got to fight the power, right? And I realized it was very strategic because they knew that if they couldn't build relationships and trust with the community residents, whether it was through these workshops or at the laundromat or at the market or at church or wherever it was, that they would never be able to um, convince them to be part of the movement. So all of those activities that I thought were kind of a waste of time um, were actually very strategic politically in building those emotional support networks. And the reason why I call them emotional support networks is those were spaces in which they would ask, how are you doing? Do you want to just share about what's going on in your life, right? What do you need, right? Do you want therapy, psychologists? Do you want people to teach you how to raise your kids, how to deal with your husband, how to deal with domestic violence? It all started out at a very, like, um, we're concerned about your emotional well-being and your mental health. We're concerned about your personal lives, right? And what that does is then, you know, build trust, um, they build rapport, and that's how they're able to convince a lot of the um, mothers, many of whom have partners that oppose them getting involved into social justice movements. They actually get them in. Great. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, no problem. So I'll go to Katie's question now. What are some suggestions to move past the stereotypes? Dragon, fiery, quiet. So, yeah, to be able to move. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. That's kind of a million-dollar question, you know. Um the power of discourse and ideology by the top down is so powerful, right? Look at the way that Asian Americans were painted uh, under COVID-19 racism, right? Despite the model minority, right? Where did the model minority stereotype go in, in throughout the whole pandemic, right? And it just goes to show, especially when it's connected to some kind of mass hysteria, right? I mean, look at, you know, 9-11 violence against South Asian Americans, um, Muslim Asian Americans and others, right? Um, look at the violence against uh, Asian Americans, um, you know, when Japan rose to prominence economically and or during World War II and the mass incarceration, right? You know, it's I think it's very, very hard to deconstruct that. At the same time, I do think we're in a very pivotal moment that I don't think we've been in in a very long time. And that is the post-Trump or maybe it's not post. Let's just call it the Trumpian era as well as the, the George Floyd era. Right. Um, and, and really, let's say the pandemic era. OK, Um and I think we're at a like a, a real propitious moment where I do think that people are either changing because of how much 
discursive, rhetorical, and actual mobilization has been going on against um, Trump and Trumpian, you know, white racist nationalism, against um, police, basically police and and state warfare against Black Americans, um, and in terms of, you know, the COVID-19 racism, you know, I I do think that... um, Gen Z, the millennial generation, and the way in which, you know, they're quite influential, right? Um, you know, we often especially knock millennials and all that, but I think politically at this political moment, they're really affecting change in myriad ways, right? That you and I who didn't grow up with any kind of internet, right? We didn't have, um, you know, and the fact that they're willing to critique capitalism and actually challenge neoliberal racial capitalism in a way that we've never seen before, the racial state that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, I do think this is a very pivotal moment. So I, I, I think that sort of marshalling those resources, kind of taking advantage of the moment, um, I think would be a great way to move beyond this notion that for example, Asian American women are, they're either dragon ladies or they're passive lotus flowers or they're Kama Sutra, you know, sex pots or, you know, whatever the stereotypes are, right? Like, um, to move beyond this notion of you're either like, you know, the submissive, passive, uh, Latino, Latina, or you're the fiery, rapist, criminal, MS-13 Latino, you know, like, um, I think that this is the moment we really do need to do more, right? I, like I was saying, I think those community and university partnerships, I think us getting involved in local movements, it always starts with the local, right? And the issue can be as local as you want, right? Because it always matters and it's always part of the system in some way, shape or form, right? Um, all of that matters. Um, I do want to point out that I think it's very significant that the majority of Asian Americans that were uh, aggressed against, and obviously the the majority of those killed um, in Atlanta in those uh, Asian spas were Asian American women, okay? And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we could also use, right, and really point out. Because in the mainstream discourse, when we talk about COVID-19 racism, they just say Asian or Asian American. They don't specify that two-thirds of the violence was being done against Asian American women. Let's talk about that. Why? Right? So, yeah. Any other questions, context, clarification? You can even bounce your research off of me. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Van. I'm sorry. Anyone else want to go first? All right, I'll ask my questions. First of all, Nadia, I was curious about the policy implications of this book. And mm-hmm. in particular, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about uh, potential reparation or redress hmm. for environmental yeah. um, injustice that has yeah. been occurring. Yeah. Not that is even a part of the conversation and the movement mm-hmm. that you have been describing. And if so, how do we go about getting, getting momentum to support that? And my second yeah. thought, really, you know, how much of this is an LA story and how much of it is the national story? And in particular, I'm thinking about Houston, yeah. Texas. Yeah. A city that's also known for 
you know, being the energy capital of the country, right, right, oil, oil refineries, everything you were describing. I was thinking Houston is the place. So I yes, most of it's a port city as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Extrapolations and or you know um, connections to Houston um, in your in your research, obviously beyond this book. Um, um, and I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so for the first question, you know, that's where that whole ambivalence towards the state comes in, right? Because, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency, right? It came about through the environmental justice movement, learning a lot from the civil rights movement, um, and, and really starting in the 80s, applying pressure, right, or 70s. Um, and the thing is, is that to most environmental justice activists and to the broader movement, the EPA has been an epic failure. Okay. Um, you know, uh, even Bill Clinton had like an executive order related to environmental justice, right? Because we often think of like environmental protection as conserve the ocean, conserve the animals, um, conserve the, the p- parks, right? The national parks and all that. But they had a specific component for environmental justice. It's no, let's think about how we address more specifically environmental justice concerns in our local communities, be they urban centers, be they agricultural and rural, right? Um, The definition of environmental justice is simply um, the right to live, work, play, go to school, and worship without um, being endangered by any kind of environmental hazards, pollution, etc. Right. So this includes workplaces that are hazardous. Right. You can consider those environmentally unjust or environmentally racist and classist places. Right. So it's a quite broad definition. But as far as what the EPA has done. Uh, to really deal with all of these different factors um, that are environmental justice related. They've done basically nothing, right? So when these activists don't really decide to focus on policy or on lobbying or on politicians, right, at various levels, and they do that, that is a part of their organizing, um, they do that because time and again, they have seen They work their butts off to get that policy, and then the policy is not administered or enforced, right? And then the goalpost moves constantly, depending on what's going on, right? Oh, we need to make more oil now. Russia's invaded Ukraine. We've got to get more American oil. So it just, you know what I'm saying? Um, They worked so hard to get a historic health impact assessment in terms of what would the impact be on the actual physical health of the communities of color if they widened the most cancerous freeway in the country, the 710, to allow more goods movement, right? They worked so hard to get that HIA, get a Spanish translation, all of that. And it ended up that the HIA was basically very superficial. Um, and when they asked, you know, the, basically the agencies in California to enforce the HIA, they were like, oh, no, the HIA is just a recommendation, right? It's not necessarily something we actually have to enforce and to actually devote resources to and change things fundamentally for, right? So, you know, in a lot of ways, they... That is why they decide to focus on kind of, we need to focus on 
making the movement bigger and stronger. How do we do that? By practicing a form of citizenship that we believe is going to take care of our fellow neighbors, our family members, our community, right? Because they're being neglected and their basic needs are not being met, right? But also to provide that emotional support in the face of that emotional neglect and violence, right? Therefore, we galvanize a grassroots movement, make it bigger, get more people to knock on doors, get more people to pressure activists, get more people at protests, right? Get more people to flood public comments. That's the way we're going to do it, not with a focus on policy, right? Um, but again, there has been the sort of ambivalence where they'll try to get policies and new legislation in place. It's just that in general, um, it hasn't really worked out in their favor. Um, there's even environmental uh, racism and classism scholars like Laura Pulido uh, at Oregon. She basically says, you know what, completely don't work with the state at all. Just don't. Right. So it's interesting the different ways that it's manifested um, as far as Houston. Absolutely. Right. Uh, communities of color, immigrants of color are also being disproportionately affected by the oil industrial complex, by the port industrial complex, right? Because Houston's a major city, it's a goods movement city, right? And usually those undesirable areas that are closest to that vortex of pollution are people of color, immigrants of color. And, you know, obviously Houston, Texas has a lot of Latinx immigrants, right? But increasingly Asian and other immigrants. So, these same fights are actually going on, right? They sometimes take on a different cast. So like in New York City, there are, um, uh, especially in the South Bronx, there's a lot of African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, right, that are fighting against not necessarily like being next to the port, because they're not necessarily right next to the port, but what they're fighting is the fact that it's in their communities that all these diesel trucks are going through nonstop to basically serve the needs of the middle class and upper middle class, right? So like, it's kind of like that, what's that? It's like fresh or some kind of grocery. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. That, yeah, exactly. So they're headquartered in the Bronx and the South Bronx in communities where they know they can't really go um, to the upper class or whiter communities because they're going to get a lot of political pushback, right? NIMBY and all that. So given the fact that African-American children, African-Americans have incredibly high rates of asthma because they tend to live in these urban centers where there's a lot of air pollution. There's also asbestos, lead pollution. It goes on and on, right? Um, that there's a lot of organizing along those lines as well. Is it the exact same issue? No. Is it the exact same source? No. But it is industry. It is urban centers. It is children. Is it, it is asthma and cancers, right? And it is still women and mothers who are taking up the helm of the leadership in a lot of ways. Um, the, in terms of environmental justice, actually, the African-American movements uh, and the origins are uh, in an African-American community um, in terms of Cancer Alley and things like that. Yeah, Fresh Direct. Thank you, Donna. That has been actually studied. But the immigrant movements, because of these immigrants now living in these port or goods movement cities or cities where there's oil or refining or toxic incinerators or whatever it is, right, that, you know, because we need immigrants in this neoliberal service economy to service the middle class and the upper class, right? So they live next to these pollution concentrations. Yet in terms of their activism, we don't study them as much because we kind of don't think of them as doing this kind of uh, movement work. 
or because of language issues, or because we often focus on the undocumented movement or DACA. Um, but really, in terms of the kinds of work they're doing in all domains, whether it's domestic violence, feminism, school reform, environmental justice, welfare, um, interfaith, religious and political movements, I mean, they're really at the helm. So if any of you guys are studying this or interested in studying this, I'd really recommend it because, you know, they're really helping redefine the political map in our country and across the globe, and we still don't have enough. Well, that's a very comprehensive response. You know so much more um, than all of us combined. Um, I guess we're at the uh, hour, so I think I will um, bring this to a close, and I'll turn this over to Diana for the last 30 seconds. Diana, you have the last word. I get the last 30 seconds. Thank you so much, Nadia. That was so insightful and to think about, right, how this affects communities not only on, on the West Coast, but also across the country and worldwide. Mm -hmm. I, I think this stretches. We have these local politics that are also taking place in, um, in various countries or throughout the world. And yes. so for those of us interested in movements or even, you know, the, the flow of migration, right, to these cities, you know, what does that look like and how do local politics take shape? And I, and I, I think that's it's we we're always thinking policy. Right. But yes. I, I do think right, policy gets manipulated mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. people get manipulated. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, so I really want to thank you for your time. And I want to thank everyone else for joining us today. And Van, thank you for um, moderating. And um, I guess if if folks have further questions, could they contact you? Or Of course. Um, yeah, they can. You can definitely email me. Um, I am on sabbatical. I'm not checking email as much, but I will get back to you. I get back to everybody. Um, and I want to thank uh, Diana and Van again. Diana, your point is so important because actually in my book, I also talk about the link between local and transnational politics and, you know, the way in which that's also kind of shaping um, their sense of political identity and strategizing. You really can't separate them, you know. Um, and obviously, um, you know, in terms of global capitalism and the pollution, the hyper pollution that's running rampant and causing the climate catastrophe, we, we really can't ignore the global scope of that. So thank you so much. But yeah, please feel free to contact me. Thank you so much, Van. It's like, you know, like I'm putting my uh, website in my book. I'm so appreciative of that. Thank you. Because who likes to do self-promotion? I certainly don't. So thank you so much. me. Um, I'll be happy to do it. Yeah. <laughs> You're so good at it. Thank you. Well, dear friends, all good things come to an end. Um, so till next time, I hope you all stay well and have a wonderful, wonderful uh, Wednesday evening. Take Thank care, you everyone. so much, everyone. Take, Take care. care. Happy holidays. Take care. Okay.